seems to move with a will that is beyond the individuals that make up the mod mob. I have just finished listening to a podcast called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And what struck me as almost humorous was Rowling, the author of the popular kids' books Harry Potter, was completely baffled that she had found herself at the wrong end of the mob's hatred and ire, all because she had tweeted that a woman is a woman. Um, Of course, saying that nowadays will land you in hot water. And she uh, defended herself because she says it isn't hate to speak the truth. Uh, For once, I I agree. Uh, But she was radically denounced on Twitter and throughout, and people have canceled her. Her books are now being subject to censorship and book burnings. Her fans have disowned her. Harry Potter fans have removed their Potter tattoos And they have said the most vile and hateful things of her and to her. And such is the mob. But what's amazing that uh, this group of people who once adored her have now turned viciously on her. And on Palm Sunday, we witness Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. Sitting on a donkey was... Uh, uh, the the uh, image of a king returning from battle as a conquering victor, as a triumphant king. And the, the crowd greets him with shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. However, just five days later, that same crowd, that same mob of people would march him out of town, crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. And this this paradox of the gospel may seem strange, but it's exactly as it should be. The truth is that the triumphant king would only achieve true triumph through his suffering and death on the cross. This was not a surprise, as God had revealed to Isaiah, that the Messiah would suffer in this way, but that through it all, God would vindicate him. The apostles' early sermons in the book of Acts are usually an exposition of Old Testament texts weaved in with the story of Jesus and showing how they applied and were fulfilled in him. For instance, Peter's first sermon in Acts Uh, On Pentecost is an exposition of three Old Testament texts. And so in the same vein of that, this morning, I'm going to be looking at a text from Isaiah chapter 50, beginning at verse 4 through 9, the first part of verse 9. And I'm going to be weaving that in with the story that we heard in our gospel lesson of Jesus and his triumphal entry. So if you have a Bible or if you're able, please stand with me as we read together from the from Isaiah, we'll say the gospel according to Isaiah in chapter 50, beginning at verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. 
I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, our Almighty God, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus, our suffering servant and our triumphant King. This morning as we come to see not only the ways that he fulfilled and was our suffering servant, but how he calls us to follow him. May you open our hearts to see the glory of God shining in his face. For we pray this in his name and amen. Amen. You may be seated. With each prophetic utterance, God was revealing to his people the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who would he be? What would he do? How would he save his people were all questions God was answering through his prophets. Not, of course, in exhaustive detail, but in hints and clues so that a a shadowy picture emerges of the Christ, waiting, of course, for its fulfillment to flesh out the details. The events of Palm Sunday are actually anticipations of a much greater event which was yet to come. Namely, Jesus' triumphant return in the end, when he comes again on a horse as a conquering king to make war on the nations. Jesus is anticipating that great day when he strides through Jerusalem on a donkey to loud shouts of Hosanna. They are praising him because he is rightfully a king, even though the path that will lead him to his triumph is a path through suffering. And so that picture of Jesus going through Jerusalem on a donkey is anticipating something that will come in the future. Jesus, of course, must first suffer before he is made the triumphant king. And before we look at how Jesus endured that kind of suffering in verses 4 and 5, we're going to look at, I want you to notice that the suffering Jesus willfully enters into. He gave his back to be struck and his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. He willingly entered into suffering. Now, it's, it's important here to distinguish this willful giving up of himself unto suffering from something like stoicism, but also from the suffering that results from sin or error. Those things are different than what Jesus is willfully entering into. He is taking on suffering for sins he did not commit. Jesus is not the ultimate stoic philosopher, nor is he a masochist who somehow derives pleasure from the pain. His suffering is for redemptive purposes. And that way they differ from our own. Further, they are not suffering from sin or error that he made. He's not suffering because he is a murderer, per se. 
And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Jesus, of course, is the only righteous man to walk the earth this side of the fall. And unlike the rest of us, he doesn't suffer the effects of original sin. He, he, nor does he suffer the consequences of his actual sins because he's never committed one. So Jesus, as the suffering servant, is innocent of all the things that normally lead us to suffering. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah 53, 7, Jesus is portrayed like a lamb that is being led passively to the slaughter. He doesn't put up a fight. He goes willingly. The nature of of our suffering servant is that Jesus enters into suffering not because he deserves it, but because he willingly takes it on. We see this play out in the Gospels. Jesus is shown as a passive sufferer who, although he is innocent, he allows his oppressors to beat and to mock him. He allows them to spit on him and to pull out his beard. The question is, why? Why does Jesus enter into this kind of suffering and for what purpose? We have often been puzzled by the problem of evil. If God is good, then why does he allow evil that leads to suffering? And if God is good, why does he allow the righteous to suffer while the wicked seem to get away with it? The answer the Old Testament gives is that there will come a time of judgment when things will be reversed. When the righteous will be rewarded for their suffering and the wicked will finally be judged. And this reversal was something that the Christ was going to usher in. But during that second temple period, after the exile, before Christ had come, the Jews developed the idea that the suffering of the righteous at the hands of the wicked was a vicarious suffering. Meaning that they they felt that in their own righteousness, they were suffering for Israel. And that when the Messiah came, he would vindicate their righteous suffering. He would declare that that suffering was for Israel, was on behalf of Israel. And this idea of suffering on behalf of someone else begins to be developed by the rabbis. And they weren't wrong that the suffering can be vicarious, that is, on behalf of another. But they thought their suffering was vicarious. And they had no concept, no no, uh, theological category for the Messiah coming and suffering for his people. They had expected that the Messiah would come to vindicate their own suffering. But Jesus willingly enters the suffering that you, as a sinner, deserve. He, the righteous and blameless Lamb of God, became the suffering servant to take on himself the sins of people. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Second Corinthians 5.21. And so that, that vicariously he could suffer as your substitute. Jesus willfully came to suffer for you. We are immediately drawn to consider the heart of a person who would, who would do such a thing. Would you? Would you enter into the sufferings of another person? Would you take them on yourself knowing that you were innocent, that you did not deserve those things? Maybe for someone you love, maybe you might give your kidney for somebody. 
Maybe you might be willingly defrauded like the prodigal son's father for the love that you have for your child. Would, would you do it for somebody who hated you? Who, who mocked you and beat you? Would you enter into their suffering? Would you take on their suffering, deserving for their sin, knowing that you are innocent? And we see the, the depths of Christ's love for you in the depths of the humility that He's willing to extend, to, to descend, not just to come from that place of bliss in heaven and perfect communion with His Father, but to come and to take on flesh, to dwell in, in one place. But even He goes beyond that, to, to, to inhabit a sinful and fallen world filled with the pains of sin all around us, the hunger, the aches, the constant threat of death, loneliness, sickness, disease. Life in a fallen and broken world is not always pleasant. But he goes even farther to show his love for you. He gives his back to be beat, his beard to be plucked out. Romans were experts at torture. They knew how to beat a man with just in just an inch of his life. Jesus' back was torn open as he bled his flesh and bones were exposed. And the great irony is that the man who whipped and beat Jesus was, was beating the one who had created him, who had made him. Can you imagine taking on that kind of suffering, knowing that that's the person that you breathe life into, beating you and mocking you, and you willingly entering into that kind of suffering. Do you see the love of Christ for you in His suffering? Do you see the depths He was willing to descend to come and save you? How could you ever, how could anyone ever refuse that kind of love? Have you ever experienced that kind of love from someone in this world? How could you ever doubt His heart for you? Why would He take such a route to save you and then require something that you could not give? Namely, righteousness and obedience and everything that we try to do to earn the favor of God. He already gave it all. What more could you ever add to His sacrifice. Jesus is the suffering servant. But suffering became triumphant in His death. And through His death, He becomes the suffering, the suffering servant becomes the triumphant King. See, the paradox at the heart of the Gospel is the redemptive sufferings of Christ are actually His hidden triumphs as a King. Paul said, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you think that if Satan and all his influence on the city of man had known that killing the son was his writing his own death certificate? Do you think he would have done it? He thought for sure he was going to conquer God. He thought he was killing the son of God. Forever. But he was only bruising his heel. And in that act of great humiliation and suffering, Jesus, the seed of the woman, is actually crushing the head of the serpent. 
But Isaiah showed Jesus knew that all along. He knew that one, he was not entering into suffering alone. And two, that through his suffering, God would vindicate him. It's here that we see the key to suffer well. It's in our communion with God. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, teaches and shows his disciples his dependence on the Father. Throughout his ministry of suffering, he does what he sees his Father doing. He does what he hears his Father doing from John 5, 19 and 30. He spends generous time with the Father in prayer, Matthew 14, 23. And especially in the most distressing times in his life, like right before his betrayal and death, he is pleading with his Father in close communion. He depends on God, on the help of God to endure sufferings. And notice verse 7 of Isaiah But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. The expression, the Lord God, could be translated, the sovereign Lord helps me. The God who is in control of all things, not an atom of this world, is misplaced in His providence. He is the one who helps me. The reason Jesus is not humiliated, the reason he can set his face like flint, that means that he is so determined to go to the cross, nothing can stop him. Jesus knows he will never be put to shame. The key to enduring suffering for Jesus, as it is also for us, is to know that God is your helper. The sovereign Lord is your helper. He has he who has ordained whatsoever comes to pass is on your side. He had determined that his only son should suffer and die for your sins. Jesus endured because he knew what the psalmist had long before prophesied. In Psalm 16, the psalmist says, I have set and and when we're reading through the Psalms, we need to picture Jesus saying these words. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus embodied that psalm. He knew that I can set my face determined to go into suffering that I am innocent of because the sovereign Lord is my helper. He is at my right hand and he will not abandon me to Sheol. He will not allow me to see corruption. And in three days I will rise again. And out of my suffering, the Lord will vindicate me. Not only did he know that the Lord was his help, but he knew that the sovereign Lord would vindicate him. Notice in verse 8 and 9, he says, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? What does it mean to be vindicated? 
being vindicated means that someone has been proven innocent or cleared of wrongdoing after being accused or suspected of something. Now think through this. As an innocent sufferer, was Jesus deserving of the suffering he willingly entered into? No. He did not deserve to suffer. He did not deserve to have his back beat and his beard plucked out. He did not deserve the nails through his hands. He did not deserve to hang humiliated, naked on a cross, suffocating to death. He did not deserve to have God's wrath placed upon him for yours and my sin. He did not deserve to undergo the penalty. And when God raised him from the dead, he vindicated him. He declared, my son was innocent of those things. And I have accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. Remember, we had just been going through the Gospel of John in chapter 5, and Jesus is being accused of making himself equal with the Father. He is equal with the Father. And that charge eventually sticks and they crucify him. But he's innocent of that charge. When God raises him from the dead, he vindicates him. This is my son. This is the one who you claimed was blaspheming when he said he was equal with me. And he is equal with me. It was his resurrection that vindicated him, proving decisively that he was the son of God. Paul begins his letter in Romans 1, verse 3, saying this, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You see, when he rose again from the dead, he is declared to be the son of God. It is made manifest to the world who he really is. That the suffering servant is actually the triumphant king. He was vindicated of those false charges. And the resurrection proved without a doubt. And he says, where's my adversary? After he's been vindicated. Who will come and level any charge against me? And does not Paul say the same thing of you? Who will come and declare you guilty? If you are hidden with Christ then the same vindication, the same declaration, not guilty, is on you. You share in His vindication. His vindication is your justification. It's your being declared righteous. And it was that confidence that led the Sovereign Lord was His helper who would vindicate Him that enabled Him to suffer willingly On behalf of sinners. But the cross continues to be an emblem of the paradox that triumph over sin and death happened through suffering unto death. That paradox that in death true life is found continues to be the driving metaphor for the Christian life. The suffering servant and the triumphant king by his suffering reframes suffering as a as it, instead of being a tragedy, something that we should avoid because it's meaningless, he transforms suffering into a means to an end. The rest of the New Testament's reflections 
on the sufferings of Christ, begin to see, we begin to see our own suffering in redemptive terms. Suffering produces something. While we're, we're certainly not called to seek out suffering, and we are called to alleviate the suffering that happens in this world to others in our own life, but suffering because of Jesus Christ is, is different. It's, it will never be the same. It's, an, it's, of course, an unavoidable aspect of life in this fallen world. And here, here we need to distinguish between the kinds of suffering. You see, Jesus suffered for sin, but, but sin that he did not commit. Sin he was wholly innocent of. And that's a redemptive suffering in, in atonement as a sacrifice for sin. And there is a suffering that comes just from living life in a fallen world. Life under the sun, life that is attended with sickness and disease and death and losing a loved one and natural disasters. And, and then there's a suffering that comes from the sins of others. School shootings. We mourn with our, our brothers and sisters in Nashville who, who lost family. Pastor Scruggs lost his little daughter, Haley. That is suffering. Not because she did anything. Not because Pastor Scruggs did anything. But because this woman took another person's life. That's suffering in this sinful and broken and fallen world. And Jesus takes that suffering and he reframes it. He turns it into something that doesn't have, it doesn't have to be a tragedy that ends in meaningless nothing. He takes our suffering and he, out of suffering he produces a triumph. There is, of course, also the suffering from our own actual sins. Peter says in First. Peter 4.15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We know the ways that we have produced our own suffering. We can think about the things that we have done that have led to consequences, and we know they're the results of our own sin. But, so what kind of suffering is redemptive then? What, what kind produces the desirable traits of someone who follows Christ? Well, it would be those who, who learn to suffer the conditions of life in this fallen world, along with a third category of suffering, which we might call suffering for Christ. This is suffering that comes because you identify with Jesus Christ, which the world hates. Jesus begins his sermon on the mount with Beatitudes, the last of which states this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you are singled out and persecuted because you have professed faith in Jesus Christ and you have endeavored to live as his follower in holiness, then you are suffering for Christ. It is that kind of suffering that is redemptive. Calvin comments on 1 Peter 1 and he says, 
all they who regard their troubles as necessary trials for their salvation, not only rise above them, but also turn them to an occasion of joy. Paul and James and Peter, they all give evidence that the righteous suffering of saints does something. It produces something in us. Paul says in Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. See, suffering produces endurance, character, hope, and hope is never disappointing. We often hear of PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. But we don't hear as often about post-traumatic growth development, which is also well-documented, even if it goes by another name. What's interesting is, is how popular culture, especially popular men's culture, has latched on to the idea that suffering can lead to growth. There has been a resurgence of stoicism as men grasp for meaning in their lives and popular authors are encouraging men to turn their suffering into ways that they can grow and become better. Stoicism is is one of those stories. Stoicism is a philosophy that originated in ancient Greece and was later developed by the Romans. It's based on the idea that individuals control their emotions and reactions through reason and logic. Stoicism teaches that the goal of life is to live in accordance with nature and to cultivate virtues such as wisdom and courage and justice and self-discipline. I think one popular title of a book applying Stoicism to modern life captures the idea well. It's entitled, The Obstacle is the Way. And in the beginning of that book, he, he quotes from Marcus Aurelius and he says, Quote, our actions may be impeded, but there can be no impeding our intentions or dispositions. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. The cross seems like the greatest obstacle. It seems like the barrier from which none of us can pass. But it turns out to be the only way to glory. Jesus as the suffering servant and triumphant king prepared the way. He has ordained that the path that all his people should walk is the same path that he walked. It involves life under the sun and his suffering for Christ, a daily dying to the flesh, a daily pursuing the cross. So that, as Paul said, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's one thing to consider that sufferings prepare us and lead us to glory, but it's, it's quite another thing to actually go through them. How do we do that? Is there anything in this text that might prepare us to share in Christ's sufferings? And When we return to the first few verses of our text, From Isaiah, we see how Jesus could endure his suffering. From this, we see also how we can endure. He says in verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. 
The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. And the image we, we see here is the image of a disciple, one who has a listening ear to be taught. Yes, there, there is a difference between listening and just listening so that you can teach it to others. Jesus is one who is intently listening so that he can speak as one who has been through suffering to someone who is suffering so that he can comfort them in the midst of their suffering because he's been there. We see the ultimate picture of a shepherd. The idea here is that Jesus has gone before you in suffering so that he can comfort those who are weary amid their own suffering. The author of Hebrews says this, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We can suffer for Christ because our Savior suffered for us. We can face the pain of life under the sun with all its attendant hardships because Jesus walked the same path. Jesus doesn't call you to do anything He did not do Himself. But you know that the end, death, does not hold the same suffering for you as it did for Him. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our, our suffering leads us on into glory. A path already paved by our suffering servant and triumphant King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we are in awe, not only at the depths of the humility and suffering that our Savior entered into, willingly subjecting himself to his own creation to suffer and to die, leading us in the same path to follow, that in our sufferings we may be triumphant, even as he vindicated as he was through his resurrection, so too are we justified. And the sting of our suffering has been removed. And we know that although we will face suffering, we face it knowing that our Lord Jesus has gone there before us and will continue to sustain and uphold those who are weary until he comes again. Until that day, Father, prepare us to suffer well, that we may Fill up what is lacking in your afflictions for the sufferings of Christ and, and bring glory and honor to you through them as we rely and depend on, on Jesus. And we await that great day when we will stand renewed in your kingdom, triumphant in great joy, knowing that you sustained us through it all. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Christ sits in heaven as a triumph.